Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein the Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in to an hour of science. We have some great stuff coming up. I've got Gracie tuning in to us from Texas. We have a guest, I think, coming from Bendigo today to talk about uh, phages and all sorts of alternatives to antibiotics. We've got uh, Dr. Ray in the studio. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Dr. Shane. It's good to see you. And uh, we've got Stacey as well. Hello. Good morning, Shane. How are you? I'm good. I think, uh, well, <laughs> I, got, I got my booster vaccine on Friday afternoon. Oh, so, yeah, I mean. Is that no, number four? Yeah, yeah. Four, yeah. I call it four, four and a half. I, oh, yeah. Four I count COVID as a yeah, half. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, don't listen to anything I say today because it could be a little bit, you know. Ah, uh, you'll be fine. But, um, yeah, all good. Um, hanging in there. So, but, you know, getting on a plane soon. So, I thought, no. Nah. Yeah, I, I did that for a trip in September, about two weeks beforehand, got my, my fourth booster. Yeah. Or, or you gotta, before. yeah. No, you got to be careful. you got to be good. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we got a lot of news and stuff to get through, so let's start off with uh, Gracie. What have you got for us? Yeah, so November 4th was actually the 100th anniversary of the discovery of King Tut's tomb in Egypt, which ah, is really cool. yes. Yes, I remember yeah. that. That's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Do tell. Yeah, so... Yeah, so a lot of artifacts that he was buried with have actually been in storage all this time for the past 100 years. Uh, and they'll actually make their debut when the new Grand Egyptian Museum opens near the Pyramids of Giza in 2023. So sometime next year, this new museum will be open. Um, so some things that will be at this exhibit that we haven't seen before will be like, like a gold burial mask, musical instruments, hunting equipment, some jewelry, six chariots, which sounds pretty impressive. So we'll wow. see. Yeah. They must have been down the back of the storeroom. They're not small. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's where do you store that? I have no idea, but they figured it out for the past hundred years. So yeah, well, that'd be great. Yeah, no, I saw uh, I saw the news about that, and I, as as we were saying just before the show, I love that video footage of them opening the sarcophagus, and there's like just people everywhere eating sandwiches and hanging around, and it's open air, no no control environment whatsoever when they first found it, uh, which is yes, wild it's so stuff. funny to see. Yeah, it's so funny to see how much has changed in yeah. the past hundred years, for yeah. sure. Yeah, these days you're in a hazmat suit and under controlled lighting and conditions if you find something like that, which is appropriate. Yeah. Right. Thank, thank you, Gracie. Uh, Dr. Ray, what do you got for us? Dr. Shane, um, I saw a story today, and, and it just said to me, sharks with freaking laser beams on it. And I went, <laughs> no, that's not what it is, but actually. And, and this is a great story on ways to track um, seagrass. Uh, growth and meadows because as you know seagrass is where seahorses live but also dugongs and turtles and it's an amazing sink for carbon and trying to understand and track seagrass beds particularly their size and and what's happening to them to climate change is quite a lot of hard work you have to have people dive and take pictures and there was a, a study that, that got a little innovative on tracking how big a seagrass meadow is. And this is the one of the largest seagrass meadows in the world. It's in the Bahamas. Uh, and this it was run by researchers at a number of different universities. It was led by a company called Beneath the Waves. And they did what you would normally do to study seagrasses. They had almost they had over 2,500 different diver surveys and picture analysis. But they went, we, we've got to do more. And so... Who is in what you got to think about the the marine life and aquatic life that is in seagrass? And they went, you know what? Why don't we strap cameras to tiger sharks? <laughs> and because they swim around in seagrass, I mean, sure they're swimming around in seagrass meadows because they're looking for turtles and dugongs to eat. So <laughs> yeah. some of that footage might not look so nice at the end, but yeah, uh, but but they actually used fish because sharks are fish, not mammals. A fish to actually enhance that survey. So they tagged about eight sharks, and so they did cameras and GPS locating. They actually did some acoustic implants in the shark as well. I mean, all mm. above board for how you're supposed to treat marine animals. But they actually used those set of sensors as well to enhance their data because, well, sharks don't need to refill their air tank. And so they could get a lot more data about the roaming patterns of shark with these tiger sharks. And what they found was they um, the actual area 
it was misestimated by 40%. It's much larger. It's about the size of Portugal underwater in terms mm-hmm. of the size of the seagrass meadow. Yep. And, and they did it using sharks. And, and I found it interesting. It wasn't like they're like, oh, we'll just use some little nice fish. I mean, you got great white, bull, and tiger. These are really aggressive sharks that, you know, to use tiger sharks for that. It's just remarkable. Uh, I want to know what the sharks got for uh, participating in the research. Did they get a voucher for coals or something like that? I was thinking like an <laughs> iTunes gift card yeah, myself. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> so the, how do you recruit the sharks? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <They> sign up. <laughs> yeah, consent forms. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, actually, yeah. the coals voucher would work better because, you know, the sharks would want fish fingers. Uh, well, uh, well it, it is cool though, and you can't really put those little cameras on a flathead, which would be the other yeah. option. They're kind of small, but you know, um, tiger sharks though. I think that's not one of the sharks I'd like to encounter. I got to say, no. But the, the concept of going, how can we use m- the animals in an environment mm. to actually learn more about? Oh it, yeah, yeah, that was a quite a creative yeah. thought. Yeah, nothing, nothing excites me more, more than when I see one of those GPS tracking maps of where like a great white or whatever has gone and you see it's like you know it's gone up to new guinea and it's headed over to new zealand you know and they have these enormous ranges they're just incredible incredible creatures what's fantastic about this if you do google cameras on sharks you'll find the study and the oh, yeah. video oh. Oh, is it turtle stuff uh i didn't see that it was very clearly shark and seagrass moving around i think there was something yeah. moving in the distance and the video cut off but see, uh, that's the sort of stuff i'd like as a screen background you know the dinner party on your television <laughs> just the you know the shark vid yeah. Shark video. Yeah, shark video. I think it'd be cool. Um, <laughs> thank you, Dr. Ray. Well, uh, my little piece of news before we get to you, Stacey, is uh, I wanted to mention that uh, one of our colleagues in the studio today has had some enormous success with his research and his commercial endeavours. So for those of you who don't know, Dr. Ray here, or I should say Professor Ray, but you know, <laughs> whatever. Uh, we, um, he is, a, he is a, in working in chemical engineering at the University of Melbourne, but him and one of his colleagues have been working on this new form of microscopy, which allows you to see really small, really, really small objects down to the size of viruses in a very simplistic way using some of the amazing tricks that we can do with light and has commercialized this technology or been working on commercializing this technology for the last, I think it must be four years at least. At least yeah, yeah, about four years when we first started chatting about it. Um, and has just managed to raise $1.5 million in funding to make this into a commercial company and actually start selling these things. So huge congratulations to you, Ray, from us here at Einstein, the Gago and Triple R. This is a, a, for those of you out there who've ever commercialized technology being at the university, this is no small feat. It's trying to like walk, walk into the moon. Yeah. yeah, you might get there, but it's real hard. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so well done, Ray, um, from um, all of us. And uh, so, when, when will people be able to get their hands on one of these in the research sense? So we're doing trials with users now. We hope to have it deployed beta testing in lab before the end of the year. Wow! And at the same time, delivering units in first quarter, if not a little earlier next year. Wow, that's fast! Yeah. Yeah, I'm just remind you, end of the year is like six weeks. I know. Away. I know. Um, <laughs> Oh, uh, well done. Yeah, uh, yeah thank you. Um, yeah. Yeah, we've been working on prototypes and beta testing for a while. So yeah. it's, uh, Very cool stuff. Folks, if you want to have a look at them, check out the website, Tiny Bright Things. Just Google that. It's tinybrightthings.com, and you'll see some of this work that Ray's been doing. It is very, very cool, and we're all very proud of him for getting this across the line. Stacy, Hey. Brighter Things. What's that? What do you want to talk about? Uh, not brighter things. <laughs> uh, <laughs> gloomier things. Um uh, as you know, I've been quite reticent to discuss COVID-19 in the studio of late, um, lest I be typecast as the COVID triple R shock jock. But I thought... Um, <laughs> oh, well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but I thought, um, you know, it remains a collect, uh, sort of a threat to our collective good health and yeah. thought it might be time just to recap on the science. Um, you know, fortunately, COVID science is not stopping, so there's lots of news and things popping out. So I thought I'd um, take a look at... Um, there's been a few headlines circulating around um, a variant soup uh, mm. of COVID-19. So yeah. really, like, what does that mean? Or variant swarm with the other one or the great convergence. Um, uh, so I thought I'd have a look and just recap on all the sort of different variants that are circulating and, um, yeah, keep keep people abreast of, of that 
um, evidence. So essentially, like for all viruses, when you get a new um, variant or a new sublineage, um, they contain mutations, um, and some of these mutations may provide an ecological advantage to the organism. So that means essentially that they've mutated it in a way that makes them better able to transmit. Um, they might be better able to attach to the cells in our bodies or to replicate and to transmit to others, or they may be better able to evade our immune response, or, um, or they also may be able to change the way they're causing clinical disease, so perhaps they cause more severe disease. So if a variant gains an ecological advantage, they may outcompete other circulating sublineages, um, and then they, that's the lineage that predominates in the population. So we saw this with um, alpha and um, delta waves. Hmm. They were distinct branches of the COVID phylogenetic tree. And, um, but what's happening with the COVID variants at the moment is that uh, lots of Omicron variants um, are having a really good crack at the race. Like, there's not one variant that's dominating. Um, so most of these variants now representing relatively minor amino acid changes, and the different lineages are showing quite similar mutations. So um, they all seem to be mutating in a way that's giving them that ecological advantage in evading our immune response. So globally, what we're seeing with the Omicron variants is that um, in Europe, North America and Africa, we're seeing variants from the BQ1 lineage, um, so again, all still Omicron, um, including the BQ 1.1. And that recently some evidence has come out in a uh, preprint that that's um, particularly good at evading our immune response. So whether that's vaccine-derived immunity or infection-derived immunity. Mm. Um, and this is particularly sort of um, hitting France at the moment and certain parts of Africa. In Asia, and particularly in Singapore, they've just come off the back of a lineage called XBB. Um, that's got more mutations than BQ1, um, but it looks like it's a kind of hybrid um, from two BA2 sublineages. Who the hell's naming these things? That seems like <laughs> some type of hard drive. Oh, so boring, yeah, it isn't it? <laughs> honestly, honestly, the early, in the early days, you know, we had Alpha, we had Delta, you know, we had Beta, all these things, and now all of a sudden we're in these numbers. People, they've lost the plot. I, I think it's, it's because the variations are so minor um, yeah. that they don't, form a like, distinct lineage in the, right. in the tree. So it's still just Omicron, essentially. Right. So I guess, you know, the, the main... Well, here in Australia, um, if we're going to continue this soup analogy, variant mm. soup, we're a bit of a minestrone, I think. Uh, so we've got, like... Leftovers. Oh, <laughs> we've got everything. <laughs> Everyone else's yeah. garbage. Yeah, yeah. Alpha, alphabet soup, that would be a better analogy. Yeah. Um, so BA5 ha had predominated of late, although there's been a recent uptick in BA2.75. Um, but anyway, we've got a mix of everything. XBB, we've had a few cases and some experts are expecting this to rise. But despite all that jargon and despite all the numbers mm. and the letters, really um, the crux of it is probably we don't need to worry too much. Individuals probably don't need to worry too much about different variants circulating. What governments need to do is monitor these variants to better understand its properties and its effect on the population. Um, and that helps us globally to um, develop new and potentially more responsive vaccines or to guide the need for implementing new mm. public health measures. So the key message, uh, yeah, I think, is not to get hung up on the variants. Really, um, in the face of our next epidemic wave here in Australia, we still just need to put into place all those measures that we have, you know, been following for the last, you know, few years to protect ourselves. So, you know, making sure you get up to date with the vaccines. I had a look at the stats yesterday. Um, only 72% of Australians have received their third dose um, and only 56% of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population have received their third dose. And that's just not high enough. And so I'd really mm. like to see those numbers increasing. Fourth doses are at worst, obviously, sitting at around 41%, 42%. Um, so if you're eligible for a booster, regardless whether it's three, four, five, get it yep. now. Yep. Is, and the is, eligibility from a target is still severely restricted for a lot of people. Go and talk to your pharmacist because, frankly, they're, they're a bit more on top of things, Well, in my view. I, I do wonder about that. We'd visited a different country. And we debated, my son's 13, we could have walked into a pharmacy and gotten mm. a third booster. But here you need, if you're under 15, there's a lot of different rules. We're special here, right? Um, yeah. We're you know, it's, it's not easy to figure out, yeah. just navigate what's appropriate. And we didn't do that because, we well, yeah. we, we live, this is the medical advice, we'll follow that. But Yeah. yeah. I think important, uh, regardless of where you're sitting on your booster schedule, um, if you can get boosted, get boosted. But 
there's all these other measures that we need to put in place. And um, so everyone's sort of talking about this vaccine plus strategy. And they're the things, despite the fact that it's not mandated, they're the things that we can all do as individuals. So that's things like making sure that we're focusing on ventilation and opening up windows and doors and all that sort of stuff again. Um, masks, um, still sort of wearing masks, particularly when you're indoors and in crowded spaces. Um, but all those yep. measures, you know, we can all still do as individuals and continue to get tested um, if you're symptomatic, yeah. isolate, you know, seek therapy. If we don't, if we don't record it, we don't know what's happening, it, and we don't test. You know, there's no way of knowing how bad things are going. And yeah. I, I like to think of everyone as having a sort of series of um, risk credits that they spend every week. Mm-hmm. You know, and and for me, you know, like I come in here, there's two of you, and we're not wearing masks while we're in the studio. There's, I know you well. I know, you know, we we communicate our activities and so forth so so this to me is where i spend some of those risk credits not when i go to the supermarket you know mask up yeah. i don't want to waste you know that little bit of risk that i take to have a sort of not relatively normal life um on things that really are not necessary you know so i don't i don't go and go to the supermarket at a busy time with no mask on things like that you know everyone's got to use those i think risk credits you know, in a smart way for things that really matter to them. Yeah. And that way we can, you know, we can we can live alongside this thing. But if you just throw it all out the window and say, you know, any any level of risk is fine by me, then being infected multiple times a year by this virus is not what you want to be doing. Exactly. That's a good way of thinking about it. Yeah. Shame. Three. Triple. On the line with us now is Associate Professor Joseph Tucci. He's in clinical pharmacy in the pharmacy. He's a pharmacy discipline lead in the Department of Rural Clinical Sciences at La Trobe's Rural Health School. Joe, good morning. How are you going? I'm going very well, thank you, Shane. It's great to have you on the line to talk about what is a, a topic that we haven't done a huge amount on actually over the years, believe it or not. Um, but you work in the area of phages. Now, I think this is something many of our listeners probably haven't even heard of, but these are an alternative to antibiotics. Now, before we get on to phages, I might just get you to give us a bit of a, an update of uh, where we are with antibiotics. We've been hearing the, the, the concerns about antibiotic resistance probably for you know three or four decades now. I, I know it's been around for a while, but what's the current situation? How, how bad is it? Um, yeah, it, it, isn't, it isn't good. Essentially, there are a lot of bacterial infections that um, <clears throat> we once were confident of treating with um, antibiotics and um, they're no longer able to be treated and um, several hospitals around Melbourne will you know regularly report on um, superbugs that they can't actually um, treat very well with antibiotics at all so it's gone from crucial um, about 10 years ago to now past that and uh, I, I think it's probably one of the biggest problems facing medicine today. Yeah. When, when you talk about some of these uh, superbugs that we hear about in hospitals, do we see those outside of those hospital environments as well, or are they mainly confined to those um, really quite unusual environments of, of hospitals? Yeah, well, that's a good question. There, um, there's potential for bacteria to become resistant to all sorts of things. Um, what happens in hospitals, of course, is that we create a, an environment where we actively select for these because we use a lot of antibiotics and really quite um, broad-spectrum antibiotics in hospitals, not to mention, say, disinfectants and other agents like that. So it's kind of like a hotbed of um, evolution for the bacteria that are multiply resistant to a range of antibiotics. Mm, interesting. Now, one of the things, of course, of antibiotics is that we haven't seen many new ones, as far as I recall, recently. And, and this, this has always been fascinating to me because we talk about them a lot, but these are things that we found essentially rather than created am i am i right in saying that and hence our understanding is fairly low yeah look um we've known of antibiotics for uh around 100 years pretty much um or agents that killed bacteria from sulfonamides um then scaling up through to penicillins um so penicillins were um actually um synthesized for medicinal use um by the actions of um howard florey um Mm. I th- well, I think got um, Australian of the 20th Century um, Award, uh, and rightly so. So he developed penicillins um, for, for for use on the front line in World War II, which probably saved some millions of lives. Um, so they're natural products, antibiotics. They're just poisons that are given off by um, bacteria and fungi to fight other um, bacteria and, and scavenge the food source that they're in. Um, they've been around 
since bacteria have been around for, you know, some billions of years. We've kind of harnessed them from, you know, early to mid-20th century. Um, the problem mm. was that with medicinal chemistry development of newer antibiotics in the 60s and 70s, I think um, we kind of thought that, you know, the work was done and, um, you know, we were, um, uh, you know, unbeatable and we could fight any bacteria, um, which was, of course, not true at all. Um, and so we're paying the price now for um, probably relaxing after we've developed a, lot, a range of new antibiotics in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, interesting. Now, your area in particular is on uh, a different type of uh, response, which is phages. Give us a bit of an idea of what they are and, and where we find them and, and, you know, where we're at with those. Yeah, look, phages are... Um, the, the, the bacteriophages is their full name, and it literally means bacteria eaters. Um, and they were first sort of discovered and kind of worked worked on about 100 years ago um, and found to have some pretty decent antibacterial properties. And essentially, they're viruses. They're everywhere on Earth. Um, we've got trillions and trillions of them, for example, in our gut. They're pretty much harmless to, un- to us because they only attack bacteria. Um, they're natural predators of bacteria. Um, and so for about, you know, most of the 20th century, Eastern Bloc countries actually used bacteriophages and have used bacteriophages pretty commonly in hospital situations. But the West kind of turned their back on them to some extent because of the commercial success of antibiotics and, um, you know, following that path. But now there's a lot of interest um, being focused on phages to potentially use them. Um, to help fight some bacterial infections. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've obviously got this big problem with antibiotics because they're sort of limited in terms of their extent and diversity and, in particular, specificity with which they act. Uh, How do phages sort of compare to that? Uh, And and are we looking at the same problems in the future or have they got specific characteristics that will prevent that? Yeah, look, uh, phages sort of um, get around this because they're a natural competitor of, of bacteria. The, the great thing about phages is that they're pretty much... It's precision therapy. They pretty much target one species of bacteria. There are a few examples where maybe they target a few more. But as opposed to antibiotics, which are kind of like, you know, a shotgun approach, um, trying to shoot an ant with a shotgun, um, scattering the uh, the toxin uh, around and killing a lot of the normal flora in our body, um, phages pretty much uh, target a specific... Um, uh, species of bacteria so you can actually use use them as precision therapy to target you know an infection and hopefully not disrupt much of the other um, microbiome in our body Mm. and and what's our source for them like if we were to you know sort of put these into medicines for peoples and so forth would we be able to sort of grow them in in a dish or is it something we have to sort of source like we do our blood supply How, how do we get a hold of these particular viruses yeah, look, we um, in my lab, we sort of hunt for them, and most people hunt for them. Basically, where you find the bacteria, you'll find the phages um, because they sort of prey on the bacteria. And, and they've got an interesting sort of um, interaction. Their um, you know relationship is really quite interesting. And they have co-evolved. So the bacteria have got an immune system which actually helps them fight off phages, but then phages evolve a system which overcomes the bacterial defences and the bacterial sort of um, uh, defences get more more um, selective over time. It's an arms race, but we can find them in, in environments where you find a bacteria. For instance, if there's a bacteria that causes infection in the mouth, um, chances are you'll, you'll find a phage um, in the same sort of environment. So swabbing people, taking a sample from wastewater is a, an excellent um, uh, source right. to find mm. phages. Yeah. And are they in use clinically at this point, or are we still early days? Yeah, look, they are, they've been, as I said, they've been in use for 100 years in Eastern Bloc countries. Um, other countries in Europe have had trials uh, of phages. There are clinical trials occurring around the world, including um, a group in Sydney at the Westmead Hospital that is undertaking a clinical trial. Um, so Western medicine is catching up to the um, issue of how to use phages appropriately. So we're trying to design proper trials, which are sort of... Um, have proper control so we can actually define exactly how the phages work and um, the effectiveness that mm. they have. And, and Joe, just before we let you go, what specifically are you doing in your lab in this space? Yeah, look, we're particularly interested in a couple of areas. Um, in the last four or five or six years, for instance, there's 
a lot of interest in bacteria that help cancers grow. Um, and they, they're called oncobacteria. It's a new term. Um, when I started pharmacy, there's no such term. But now they cause it, these bacteria, oncobacteria, and they've been shown in animals and humans that they actually associate with cancers, for example, breast and colon cancer. They um, help the cancers grow more, um, uh, more, more uh, uncontrollably. They help them spread and metastasize, and they help them become resistant to chemotherapy. So we've done some experiments in my lab showing that using some phages, we can actually control this excessive growth of the cancer cells, um, uh, this excessive growth they impose on, on the cancer cells. So it, it's opening up a whole sort of really interesting area potentially that we could go into and try to, you know, utilise phages to maybe assist with the treatment of some cancers. So that's one particular area. Another particular exciting area is in control of periodontitis, which is this horrible disease of the gum and jawbone, which degrades the jawbone. Um, and that's that's brought about by a bunch of bacteria that form a biofilm, and the inflammation um, causes excessive gem- damage to the jawbone and gum, and you lose your teeth. So we've we've got phages against some of these um, uh, key um, uh, bacteria that are in the biofilms, and we want to tr- test them now in, in you know, in more sophisticated models to see how well they can help control periodontitis, for instance. Mm. Oh, look, it's a, it's a fascinating area, and it's one, as I say, we haven't talked about it a lot over the years because, you know, it's, it's fairly nascent, especially in the West. Yep. And I think, um, you know, once again, we come back to this issue of helping our own immune systems, especially with the cancer, to, to do their job. And sometimes, you know, when things get skewed, we just need to step in and, and give our own immune systems the, the assistance that, it, that they need uh, to, to fight cancers like what they do every day of our lives until things go go off the rails so joe good luck with that ongoing work thanks so much for chatting to us today on einstein and gogo and hopefully uh phages will be a a term that we all know and love uh in the coming decades thank you very much and when we have some more success we'll um, be happy to tell you about that too sounds great give us a yell thank you folks uh, that was associate professor joseph tucci from the department of rural clinical sciences at la trobe university's rural health school Triple R. Uh, on the line with us now, I'm pushing all the right buttons today, so it's all going to work. Gracie's back. Hello, Gracie. Yes, hello. Glad to be back. We can hear you now. What are you going to tell us about today? Great. Yes, so today I'm going to talk about four extinct animals. And in particular, I chose these animals because there are some recent studies that have come out that have changed our understanding about these animals in some way. So I thought that made it a little more interesting. Okay, this so isn't going to be deeply, one, up, deeply upsetting or anything, is it? Like these long, long gone animals, they're not last week. Yeah, correct. Well, we'll see. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> are you ready for the first one? Do it. Yeah, so the first one is the giant sloth, so it sounds pretty harmless, right? Um, Did you know that this particular species of of giant sloth was actually discovered by Charles Darwin? Because I'd heard of giant sloths before, but I did not know that. No, I didn't know that. The Mylodon, yeah, it's called the Mylodon Darwini. So it makes sense, Darwin, Darwini. So these were 10 feet tall. They weighed over 2,000 pounds. So basically picture a sloth, but like the... It's the size of an elephant, essentially, uh, which is, which is kind of kind of insane to think about. Yeah. Um, and just in case you're wondering how they climb trees, the answer is that they didn't. So these were actually <laughs> ground sloths. So they were capable of walking upright on their hind legs, actually, which is really cool. Um, and they actually existed between like 1.8 million and 12,000 years ago, mostly in South America. And so they were actually thought to be herbivores, kind of like modern sloths for the longest time. But actually, there was a paper published in Scientific Reports last year. Um, They actually tested hair samples uh, from fossilized parts of the ground sloth. And whenever they tested these hair samples for different proteins, they actually found out that there was some evidence that the sloths may have actually eaten meat to supplement its plant diet. Well, sooner or later, as a sloth of that size, you're just going to accidentally stumble across, literally stumble over a rodent or a small mammal, and you might as well consume it once you've stepped on it. (laughs) Right, yeah. Sounds so appetizing. Yeah, there was also, while I was... Oh, yes, for sure, yeah. 
Uh, also, as I was reading this article, uh, the article said something like, PhD student so-and-so who studies giant sloths gave this commentary. And I was like, why don't I study giant sloths? I didn't know that that was something as a PhD student you could just kind of like focus in on, which is really cool. Well, I didn't know, that, uh, I didn't know that Jabba the Hutt was a real creature. I mean, that's... <laughs> That's clearly where that yeah, came from. that's like the closest comparison. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, so are you ready for the second one? Yep, go for it. So, so the second one is a mega piranha. So this is the one that I had in mind that was kind of like, uh, it still kind of exists. Piranhas exist, but this is a mega piranha. So if anybody in the audience Googles mega piranha, the first thing that's going to come up is a 2010 horror movie <laughs> called <laughs> Mega Piranha. <laughs> Uh, it was apparently it did horrible. It has an eight percent review on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, really? Um, so I, I'm probably not going to give it a watch, to be honest. But it's kind of the same kind of uh, kind of the same kind of uh, idea. Uh, basically, they're essentially giant piranhas that lived eight to twenty uh, eight to ten million years ago, and they were about twenty two pounds. So if you can imagine a piranha that's twenty two pounds, what's that about ten kilos? Um, I don't know. My pound to kilo oh, is not good. Yeah. I should have converted. <laughs> so these were discovered in the early 1900s and also from an isolated tooth that was found in 1999 in the city of Piranha. Um, and they did tests using a replica of the mega piranha's teeth. And they actually showed that it would be able to penetrate a turtle shell. Oh, wow. So they, they could have hypothetically fed on these turtles, potentially, they think, or maybe other armored fish. Um, so there's a paper published in 2012 that tried to calculate the bite force, what the bite force of a mega piranha would be. So what they did is they used bite forces from modern, like current day wild piranhas, which don't ask me how they did that. I didn't even want to look, honestly. <laughs> it's like, what grad student's going to volunteer to be on that project? Uh and they combined these bite forces from current modern-day piranhas with simulations of mega piranha fossils. And they actually found that mega piranhas were capable of crushing vertebrae bone. <laughs> That's fantastic. So I've still got the, uh, yeah. that movie from 2020 in my head. Yeah. I can hear it now. You know, <laughs> yeah. From the producers yeah. of Sharknado. <laughs> and the executive producer of Total Recall. Yes. <laughs> hey, I'm very proud of the fact I just looked up 22... 22- 22 pounds and it's 9.98 kilograms i was pretty You're close right. oh it's amazing yeah, when 10. you make a totally like, random right guess a small dog <laughs> yeah it's a small dog that's that's enormous that is a big fish yeah yeah so its bite force was actually measured at about five thousand newtons or about a thousand pounds right um which is terrifying uh, and so this paper concluded that whenever they adjusted for its body size, it would actually make it among the most powerful biters of all like carnivorous vertebrates wow. that have ever lived, probably. Yeah, it's not so something I want to impressive. encounter. So part of me is happy it's extinct, but part of me is also thinking, wow, wouldn't that be an amazing creature to have around? I'm sure it was a big part of the food chain. Gracie, your story like sounds like the beginning of a of a joke, like a you know a giant a giant sloth and a ten kilo piranha and a massive and a piranha into the bar. bar. Yeah. <laughs> Who's left? <laughs> All right. What else have we got? Yeah. Pr- yeah. Pretty much everything I'm going to talk about is just giants. Giants, so, yeah. That's uh, cool. Like That's a cool. giant version of a thing that we have. Yeah. So this one actually didn't have teeth, though. No teeth on this one. But we're still talking about fish. So this was basically a big armored jaw fish with bony exterior. So when I say big, think like nine meters long and four mm. tons. Okay. So big fish. Big fish, jaws, uh, and bony exterior. So basically a big armored fish. Um, and then instead of teeth, uh, this fish, which is called the Dunkelasteus, which I find is just like the funniest name you yeah. could have named this thing. <laughs> uh, so it had two pairs of sharp bony plates that kind of formed like a beak mm. instead of teeth. Um, and so, like I said, it kind of has a strange name. So the Dunkel part actually comes from someone's last name that first discovered it. So his name was David Dunkel. And then Osteus, of course, would mean something like bone. Um, so you could think of it that way if you're trying to Google it, Dunkel, Osteus. Uh, and so uh, there was actually a 2017 study to try to kind of figure out what this thing even looked like, because most of the fossils that we have are just about its head and neck. 
So mm. kind of just the front of it. And no one really knew how big it was or what the back of it looked like or or how this thing actually looked. And so there was a 2017 study to kind of decipher more of the body shape based on its eating patterns and some more fossil evidence. And so it they basically determined it looks more like a shark. Mm. So just a giant shark. Uh, it actually, its its jaws are the most terrifying part of it because they actually had a four-bar linkage mechanism, which basically means that it can uh, basically have a really high output force for relatively little input force from its muscles. Um, and so it could uh, have a really high speed of jaw opening and closing, making its bite force a lot more powerful. Wow. Uh, yeah, so up to about 7,000 newtons or 116,000 pounds of force. So it probably also ate animals that were armored as well. So like other armored fish and turtles and things. Yeah, it's hard to believe that something like that ever went extinct. I suppose they, you know, big creatures like that have to consume a lot of food. So maybe there was a period where it, you know, its food supply was cut off. Right. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because it said that its feeding habits were kind of comparable to modern fish that use suction feeding. Hmm. So that's interesting to me how it would be able to sustain that, kind of like what you were saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, well, that one's – I'm, I'm very much getting the feeling that I – you know, even back in the Jurassic-type period, there was more scary stuff in the ocean than there was in the on the land. Although the good thing was most of the time in the ocean you get swallowed whole. <laughs> so there's that. Silver lining. Yeah, although then you get slowly digested. Yeah, there's a Star Wars story in there somewhere. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's number four, Gracie? Yeah, so number four is my personal favorite. It's called the Siberian Unicorn. A what? Uh, so, yeah, so <laughs> a unicorn, Thank yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so picture, picture a large rhino, like rhinoceros, like the size of a mammoth. So giant, ginormous mm-hmm. rhinoceros with a giant unicorn basically coming out of its head so just a single horn uh and whenever i say a giant horn i'm talking like three feet in circumference in circumference horn or length in circumference circumference on this horn my goodness that is a giant horn yeah it's massive yeah um so it was actually first described in 1809 Um, from a gift that a Russian princess had given somebody. Um, And this was all based on just the left lower jaw and a few molars at that time. Um, But then uh, we discovered a lot more fossils basically around Eastern Europe and China to put the rest of its body basically together um, or what a depiction would look like. And it actually wasn't moved into the rhino family until 1997 under a new classification system. Hmm. This is uh, a... the name kind of I, I thought you were having me on for a second there but, but uh, Stacy's just shown me a picture and it does look like a giant rhino with a huge unicorn horn yeah it's pretty ugly but I mean amazing a unicorn they exist yeah so unicorns <laughs> do exist we just had the wrong we thought of horses we should have been thinking of rhinos yes I'd actually never heard of this until I started you know kind of looking up some more extinct animals you know I'd heard of you know giant sloths before mm. um, I'd heard of mega piranhas but this one was really just kind of out of nowhere um and so actually uh some sadder news though a 2021 study comparing what we know of its skull and neck anatomy compared to those of modern rhinos actually found that uh they think that it may have actually had no horn or a very small horn oh. so actually not <laughs> as big as we're thinking um and that was just published last year so we'll see kind of with more simulations more research see if that's true yeah. um, or if we can keep the name unicorn i don't know what they would do in that case if they would just change the name or if they would keep it or what would happen there maybe it was a one-off no horned one-off a u- one-off giant unicorn. <laughs> i like the pun <laughs> oh that was accidental but yeah that was a great pun yes very good thank you gracie amazing stuff it's uh it's it's weird and wonderful to hear about some of these particular creatures and and you think what what kind of world was it when these things were roaming around um us little mammals must have really had a hard time yeah i think it's amazing too just to hear uh, about how people have gone about doing simulations to be able to Mm. kind of further our understanding of what these animals looked and sounded and felt and moved like um that we didn't know before without this technology. Yep. As long as you don't tell me these giant unicorn rhinos had feathers. I don't want to hear that. That'll wreck the image. Uh, as far as I know, they didn't. I don't think anyone knows at this point. So who, who knows? It could <laughs> have had, know. you know, no horn, feathers. 
No horn feathered giant rhino. Could be a cool thing. If it had feathers and wings, then it's a Pegasus unicorn. (laughs) Oh, we're getting out of control. Uh, You are listening to Triple R. We've got about 15 minutes to go. Minus two, whatever, something or other. Dr. Ray, what do you got for us? Dr. Shane, so I I saw this invention last week and went, yeah, that's pretty cool. Because... What the these are researchers out of Harvard, and the one researcher, um, the leader of the lab, Vinnie Manaharan at Harvard, been following his work for years, and it's always clever and elegant. And what he's done is he invented another simple machine. Hmm. And the statement for that is pretty crazy because simple machines, they've been pretty well defined and along for a, a long time. So when I say a, a simple machine, what defines a simple machine, of course, Dr. Shane will know because he's a physicist, is because it's something that can modify the motion of an object and it uses force to do it. Okay. And so it can do the work on it. And so does everyone remember the seven simple machines they learned in school? I don't remember any of them. So we had no. the inclined plane, the lever, the wedge, oh, yeah, the yeah, wheel, stuff like the that. axle. Uh, the yep. pulley, the screw. Actually, technically... I remember a, the pulley. Yeah. Yeah. Pe- technically, a screw is an inclined plane wrapped around a cylinder. Hmm. And that's... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and so simple machines are, are defined as they don't have any moving parts, um, but they're able to do work on an object and cause it, an object to move or something. Yeah. Kind of stuff the Romans said. Yeah. And... Um, oh, sorry. Got excited about aqueducts. Um <laughs> Not a phrase everyone <laughs> says, but if you read about um, that, could be worse. Um, anyway, so but where they invited invented a simple machine was actually in machines in the micro realm. So when you want to start getting small objects to move together, you could be moving around cells, trying to get small microfibers together to manipulate small objects. We actually have a whole set of of different machines that we use. And some of the ones we've we've invented there are things like tweezers, but to move micron-sized objects around. So mechanically, you can use a micro-manipulator. Those are used to move cells around. But then other ways to, to move microscopic objects around are light is a very common one, to use optical forces to move objects around, particularly if you want to move particles around, mm. small particles that in water, and it's actually called an optical tweezers or a do, laser do you know the, tweezers. The first time I heard the term optical tweezer, I was like... Whoa. And it was because someone was asking me to come and help them set up their optical tweezers because they thought they knew all about it. And so I walked in there going, yeah, no problem. What the hell is an optical tweezer? I need them on my eyebrows. (laughs) You would think that. But optical tweezers are actually use light to actually move something around because Mm. photons actually have momentum to them. And I've even used that in my lab where we've made – like you can move particles around in water. In, in my life, it's the closest I've ever come to actually using the force. But um, <laughs> you, I'm going to buy you some fridge magnets. <laughs> but, That's closer. <laughs> fine. Magnets is a yeah. great force. Yeah. Anyway, what, what they were trying to do was actually manipulate little t- fine wires. And when I say wires, I'm talking about microfilaments that are about the 50th the thickness of your hair. Okay. Because if you can braid these, they're, what they're used for is next-generation high-speed circuitry that you have to actually twist wires the same way regular wires are twisted, but they're much smaller because they have to conduct at high levels. And, and so making braided wires when the filaments get really small tends to break down in most of the technologies that are there. And so this is really important for next-generation mobile phones and antennas. And they went, well, how are we going to manipulate these? And so they created a different type of 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 a simple machine to do it and they actually used capillary forces Mm -hmm. and and why that's interesting is one it's incredibly simple they use the meniscus and things to push particles or objects together so what what is a capillary force and it's from surface tension but we we've actually encountered capillary forces um stacy's got a glass of water uh, but I was thinking of this analogy when you get, if you've ever gotten a fly and floating in the top of your wine, it's really annoying. But if you ever are unlucky and get two flies, did you ever notice for some reason they actually stick together? Yeah, they hang out. They actually hang out together. Even What's if you're not, yeah, and it's not it's not fly glue. It's actually the capillary forces on the surface of the water actually push those objects together. Hmm. And and it's because the length scale of capillary forces is like a centimeter or a little less than that. And it's also like if you get like uh, I know if you get like a little juice box or something and you have the straw coming out and you have it bent over, sometimes it can drag the juice up. Exactly, and well, then spill out. Right. Yeah. That, that's a balance of gravity yeah. and capillary forces. Yeah. So what sucks they, it up? It's magic. So what they did as a simple machine is they basically used think of it as a a straw the size of the diameter of a straw in a juice box. 
And instead of just the straw, they made this kind of like plastic rectangular block that's taller than it is wide, and they put a hole in it. And you could think of it as like putting a, a hole the size of a straw. And then if you let that block float on water and you move it up and down, it, you're going to have a little capillary meniscus where the water is inside that cylinder, and it'll move up and down with it. And you think, okay, well, that's, that's not really... It moves it. up and down the straw, you mean? Well, yeah, it, yeah, so it moves up and down the straw. Yeah. Now, if it's vertical, that's not actually a machine. But if you actually take that kind of cylindrical hole and put it at an angle or a slant with respect to the water, that means that that cross-section, or that, that, that as the meniscus moves up, it moves left to right in the block. Mm. And so what they did was, is they put, we said, okay, well, they put a little plastic float in the middle of that hole. And the meniscus forces, the capillary forces, keep it in the middle. And so then as you move the block up and down, you're technically moving that little plastic float left to right. Mm. And so that's a simple machine. Mm. And what's cool about that is capillary forces keep it dead center. You don't have to push it. You don't need any mechanical devices. Now, the little plastic floats like a millimeter. That doesn't sound exciting. But if you take one of those microfilaments and attach it to that plastic float and it's hanging in the water, suddenly you're able to move this micron-sized object in a very controlled way in a simple machine. Now, one cylinder, not that exciting. It's kind of like putting a, cutting a, the, the cross-section of a straw through a block. But what if you wanted to braid something? So imagine taking two straws and wrapping them around each other, twisting them around each other. And that cross-section now actually, and you then use two plastic floaties and with two filaments hanging. And then when you move the block up and down, you can actually braid the wire underwater. And you can actually manipulate, because if you think about what happens with that cross-section, each plastic floaty's got a little string hanging from it. It's just a micron big. And as you move the block up, they'll twist together. And then when you move the block down, they'll untwist. So they had to have a kind of a clever reset there. But you can actually create complicated cross-sections that cause the, the wire hanging from the plastic floaty to twist around itself. And they did it with the Kevlar wires that were like one micron thick. And so they actually showed that you could actually make this simple machine that can manipulate one micron thick Kevlar waters just by twisting them around. And you kind of go, and, and they have to do a little bit more work to do this with the, the high conductivity fibers. But they did it. All the objects, the holes are like millimeters in size. The block of plastic they used, they 3D printed. Hmm. I mean, you could do this with a 3D printer from Officeworks and a pot of water. It's not terribly expensive, but you can manipulate things on this micron scale. And you do have to understand the science behind capillaries and do a bit of modeling to understand what's the right cross-section. And there's a lot of geometric spatial reasoning to figure out how to make that twisted cross-section go not unbraid the wire when it goes back up. So there's, there's clever tricks they use. And basically, they just used a little robot that caused the floaty block to go up and down. Uh, and it would just continue to braid. But the thing costs, you know, whatever nothing. it costs. It yeah, costs no nothing. electricity, no chemicals required. No, an optical it's tweezer all, uh, needs a laser and a microscope yeah, yeah, yeah. and lots of moving parts. Yeah. Um, and they were able to, to just kind of wrap this around and twist it. And 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 this is, they think it's, it's uh, Stacey, you look like you want to say something. Uh, yeah. Uh, remind me again what the applications are of this so, in the real world. Is this like fiber optic types? So what you, they, they actually want to make it for um, high-speed circuitry. So, yeah. so when you want to transfer current through wires, when you do it at very high rates, like megahertz or tens, millions of megahertz, um, you actually, the, 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 the transfer rates, you need something that's very highly conductive, and you also actually mm. want the wire to be quite small. Yeah. And so you can't just have one wire because it'll break. So to yeah, make yeah. the wires, they, they twist them. So if you've ever, um, well, not, if you've ever worked at JCAR or Radio Shack or done a little electrical wiring, when you have to strip wires, you'll notice wires can be made out of either solid pieces of copper or braided. It's like most of our cords are braided. Yeah. And so those, lots of wires. Lots of little wires twisted together. Easily broken. Easily broken on their own, but if you have a bunch of them together, they, they're, they're, they're stronger. And yeah. so these are to make the wires that you'd use in a next-generation phone for its antenna or conductivity because we're normally when they make really fine wires, they use braiding machines, but these tend to break in braiding mm. machines. Yeah. It's cool stuff. Gotcha. It's cool stuff. Capillaries. I love capillaries. Hey, yeah. I wanted to mention before we got to the end of the show, uh, the oh, thank you, Ray. Yeah. Um, the Artemis rocket that I got very excited about a couple of months. And, you know, we uh, we had the almost launch, and then there was some hydrogen yeah. leaks, you know. And then we had the almost launch, and then there was some leaks. 
And then we had, shit, we better get back into the shed because there's a hurricane coming, which uh, I think that's interesting. People are like, oh, why are you rolling it back into the vehicle assembly building? It's like this thing is like, you know, it's like taking something the length of a football field and sitting it end on in a hurricane. It's like, "Mm, you had some leaks before. You're definitely going to have some shit going on after that. So all sorts of debris flying through through the air. So, you know, they rolled it back on the crawler. You know, it's called the crawler because it goes real slow. It's like four miles an hour. Yeah, it's like takes like eight hours or something to get there. It's not that far. It's like a six mile trip or something. Yeah. Anyway, it's a very, very long and slow. Um, but you know, that's the platform that it launches off. So, but it's it's an amazing piece of technology. I, I you know, can you imagine the driver? Huh. You know, just nodding off. He's sitting there playing some fifties tunes or something. You know? <laughs> I'm thinking like a Melbourne tram driver on their phone texting while they're. <laughs> I don't know, but you know, there's no tracks. You know, you got to steer. <laughs> yeah. um, you do have to steer. But uh, you know, so they've rolled it back out now. It's just come back out of the vehicle assembly building in the last two days, and it is back there at the launch pad, ready to go on the 14th of November. Oh. Now, there's a lot of Americans I know, friends of mine, who are a bit pissy because it's going to happen just after midnight. And I'm like, well, in the strange oh. time, that's gold, man. That's early afternoon. That's great. Because uh, listeners, long-time listeners of the show would know I came in there one weekend a little bit sleep-deprived because the anticipated launch time was like 3 a.m. or something before the show. And uh, then it was scrubbed. Yeah. So I got up and no no dice. Shane, remind me, what is the Artemis rocket launching? So the Artemis rocket is launching – well, the only thing attached to it really is an Orion spacecraft, which is uh-huh. – Think of the original spacecraft that returned astronauts to um, to the Earth during the Apollo missions. So this is essentially the rocket that will take human beings to the moon, and I believe that will happen on Artemis three for landing, um, two for people actually just repeating the Apollo 8, uh, Apollo 9, Apollo 10 um, trips around the moon where they orbited the moon. Um, but this is the rocket that will go back to the moon and then hopefully with success and some time onto Mars. So this is a really big deal. And I think we will get to see this, you know, one of the, the largest rockets ever created um, launching in just two weeks, uh, so, less than two weeks. Yeah. So this is way more advanced than the Saturn V they used to get to the moon. Well, look, to be fair, the Saturn V, it was pretty damn good at the time. And its overall thrust was, I think it's a, a little lower than what the Artemis series will give you over time. I mean, this one is not the highest capacity of the Artemis rockets because obviously going to Mars is a different deal. But, um, but yeah, amazing stuff, amazing stuff. So it'll be you know, hopefully launched in a couple of weeks. And, and we often, I just want to see, you know, like... The, the sort of scientific capabilities we have now for looking at the moon if we go and walk around there is like chalk and cheese compared to what we had in the, the 60s. So, you know, that's going to be cool. I mean, we, we see that already just in remote craft that we send out. But anyway, I'm very excited. People know I'm a space nut. That's the way it is. Uh, no apologies for that. You know, also love the environment. <laughs> <laughs> and other areas of science, but it's my first love. Folks, we're going to have to hand over in a moment to the team from Eat It. Stacey, great, uh, sorry, Gracie, great chatting to you. Thank you. Nice to be on. Good to see you, Stacey. They're too close. They're too close. Good, good to see you too, Stacey. Great to have you in the studio. Likewise. Thanks, Dr. Ray. And again, nice. congratulations on your huge success with your technology. We're all very proud and we look forward to big things happening. Thank you. Folks, I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a fantastic weekend and we will chat to you again next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.